You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. One of the things about financial markets that's always been the most difficult is the old adage, buy low and sell high is really never followed because human behavior is, you know, we love the comfort of a crowd. And, but as we come off of it, nobody wants to catch a falling knife. Nobody wants to invest in a depreciating asset, even if that might be, you know, the right time to put your money in because nobody wants to call the bottom. You probably have a solid plan for retirement, but maybe you're wondering, did I miss something? Is there something more that I can do right now to secure my financial future? It is time to find out. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today for our very first Her Money episode of 2023. We're so happy to have you with us for another year, especially coming out of 2022 when I gotta say so many of us had some big money questions because it was a very bumpy ride. On average last year, we saw stocks down by about 22%, bonds down by 15%. It was actually the worst year for bonds since 1926. Crypto took the biggest beating with a decline of around 50%. But wait, there's more. Inflation was also a killer with prices for everything up by as much as 9.1%. That was a 40-year high. In an effort to tamp down runaway prices, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates seven times, which of course had the effect of making borrowing far more expensive. So that 30-year fixed-rate mortgage that might have cost you around 2.6% in 2021, yeah, it's now hovering around 7%. And coming out of such a strange year like this one, I've got to admit that I have found myself wondering, where the heck do we go from here? I mean, collectively, we have all been struggling with how and where to invest and reevaluating our long-term financial strategies. Fortunately, today we've got some answers. Diane Swank, who is chief economist at KPMG, a tax and advisory services firm, and one of my favorite voices ever of all time on the economy, is here to help us answer some of our questions. She is an award-winning economist who served as an advisor to the Congressional Budget Office and the National Economic Council. She recently took over the growing economics team at KPMG and was named one of the top 50 most influential economists. Diane, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here with you, Jean. So I would just love to start with you either validating what I just said or totally disagreeing <laughs> with me. I mean, was 2022 as strange a year as I think it was? You know, what year has not been strange over the last three years? But yes, 2022 was an absolutely extraordinarily strange year. We had actually the first half of the year, the economy technically contracted, which usually we would say is a recession. But didn't rise up to the threshold that economists call recession because we generated over four and a half million jobs. I mean, you know, almost double the pace of well, the 2010s in one year. Really extraordinary to see the kinds of shifts we saw over the course of the year, the rocky ride, the 
inflation that burned, the invasion of Ukraine worsening and adding you know, fuel to an already well-kindled inflation fire. We did see some of that come off near the end of the year in terms of energy prices and food prices coming off a little bit. But we're still at a place where underlying inflation in the service sector, which is the most dependent on the labor market, the Fed is still worried about derailing that. They really think of, you know, the best liking I have to it is because of part of my own personal experience is inflation is like cancer. You want to catch it early and you want to get it before it metastasizes into a more fatal condition. And the treatment may not be pleasant, but the Fed is a cure and that's better than the alternative. And the alternative is what we saw, you know, a two decades long inflation metastasize into stagflation in the 1960s and 70s. And the Fed is desperately trying to avoid those mistakes because they culminated in two back-to-back deep scarring recessions, the scars of which we still feel today. So, you know, I know it's really hard to talk about what the Fed is doing and raising borrowing costs and how hard that is for consumers. But inflation took consumers that had a moment in the sun with their wages going up and left them burned by the rise in prices and unable to keep up with that. And what we saw was, even though the economy didn't technically go into recession, the polls before those midterms, you know, were showing that overwhelming majority of Americans thought we were either in a recession or on the cusp of one. And that's because everything they had gained and then some was lost to inflation. And that's why inflation is so important to tame. Yeah, we're hearing now that the savings that people had racked up during the pandemic have been eaten away, that personal debt, the credit card debt that consumers are carrying has really popped. It popped significantly in the third quarter. And I guess the recession question, it's such a strange one, right? When it seems as subjective as it is objective, that there is some squishiness to what is and what's not a recession. What happened during the pandemic, during 2020, when we had that one big down quarter and the economists called it a recession, even though we didn't have the two quarters that we were used to thinking about. So I guess they have some wiggle room. Is that is that just how it works? Well, first of all, a recession is something that's broad-based and has a lot of losses. It's not just a two-quarter decline. And the lockdowns, 22 million jobs lost in the course of a month and a half, two months. That was stunning. And it, we came out of it fast, but not overnight. And so, yes, that was a recession given the whole global economy was put on hold. It was really something that was incredible. That said, recessions on how an economist and what the official is called the National Bureau of Economic Research, they actually have a business cycle. They set, they are the official arbiters of these things. They look for things that are broad-based when it comes to recession. And the domestic economy continued to expand even though GDP contracted. At the beginning of the year, it was because the U.S. economy still had some momentum in it, and it was trade that deteriorated dramatically in response to the war in Ukraine. So we saw the rest of the world collapse, which took overall GDP down, but our domestic consumer kept on going. And in fact, the consumer has continued to spend, albeit at a far slower pace after adjusting for inflation than it did in 2021. What we did see, though, was housing already went into a recession 
immediately after Russia invaded Ukraine, and we saw mortgage rates spike. And that was really a stunning pullback to see home values now falling instead of rising, despite the fact there's still tight supply, is a really dramatic thing. And people are very cognizant of their home values. Now, it's not a repeat of 2008, 2009, when we had the subprime crisis. You know, we're not levered like we were. Over 40% of people who own their homes have paid their mortgages off. Very different from, Mm -hmm. you know, 2008, 2009. It also means they're not too excited about moving, which has left supply constrained, you know. The good news, you know, the silver lining on this is on the other side of whether it is, and it's a fine line between a sharp slowdown with the rise in unemployment, call it a recession or not, or an actual recession qualified by an economist with a rise in unemployment. That are the two scenarios the Fed's looking at. The soft landing scenario has a rise in unemployment. That's really important. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, the important thing to remember is Fed-induced recessions. We've not had one like this since really the 1980s, fighting inflation, right? Right. But it's not the 1980s. And they're trying to learn from previous mistakes. And they're trying to get inflation, not a two decades long inflation wrestled down, a inflation that's lasted too long, but been the residual of a lot of different things over the last several years. And that's a different kind of animal. And the fact that they're wrestling this beast down early is good. And also Fed-induced recessions, even though consumer balance sheets, they're starting to take on more debt. I worry about the stress, particularly in the lowest income households. You know, they've already depleted all their savings. There is none left. That was as of, you know, June. Mm-hmm. They had already, you know, everything they had accumulated during the pandemic and then some was gone. Higher income households, about 70% of what's left in savings is in the very highest income of households that are less likely to drain that savings to cushion spending because they rely on their incomes. But it really is, you know, this splitting hairs in terms of what we're talking about. The issue on the other side is that Fed-induced recessions are easier to recover from. And even though households have taken on more debt, it's not the subprime crisis. Firms, large firms in particular, have either paid down their debt or locked into low rates. And that balance sheet cushion means that once the Fed turns a spigot back on and starts to lower rates, I don't think they're going back to zero again. But once they start to lower rates, we can more rapidly come out of this. And that's where the silver lining is. I know you got to squint to see it, but that is where it is important to keep the focus is that we do have an ability to respond to these lower rates when they come, even though consumers are taking on debt. One other you know, point about, it's really important, the dirt is always in the details. And you know, Gene, I, I think about these things a lot because people talk about the aggregates, mm-hmm. the overall. You know, Well, we got overall income growth grew last year because we generated over four and a half million jobs. Well, that's a lot of new paychecks. Right. Individuals, felt like they lost ground and then some, and they did feel like they recessed or regressed in their living standards. That's real. I think, you know, understanding the details and the fact that we're seeing buy now, pay later loans. It reminds me of, this really dates me, back in the 70s and 80s, used to have layaway plans. Oh, you yeah. Know, to be able I to was buy right th- there with you. Okay. You know, I know I'm dates myself a little bit, but I remember those things. Those went up 78%, the most recent data, and that's not in the Fed credit statistics. Those buy now, pay later loans are mostly people who don't have credit cards, and they're using them to buy groceries. Mm -hmm. That is worrisome. That's, to me, a sign of economic stress in those households 
that, you know, actually finally saw a chance to have one job instead of multiple jobs. And I think that's important to remember is, you know, how much inflation has burned those households and that, you know, there is signs of stress, but we are in a better position to recover overall. Once we get to the other side, the pain is between here and there. So let's talk about the between here and there, and let's sort of unpack it piece by piece. And I know we're forecasting, right? But forecasting yeah, with a lot of years. A humbling profession these days. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of years of experience. Let's take it piece by piece. When you look at jobs and when you look at wages, where do you think we're going? So if all we do is have hiring freezes and stop hiring up, we could lose over half a million people to retirements alone and reduce paychecks by that next year. That's without any increase in the unemployment rate if we just were to freeze where we are. That's important to remember because we're up against this you know, cliff on demographics. We lost over 700,000 people this last year to retirement and they're not coming back like they used to. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons for that, including the scars of COVID itself. But that's important to understand because you think about the swing from over 4 million jobs and new paychecks created, some of them multiple jobs created, to none to negative. That's a huge swing in income. And it's hard for me not to see consequences that are painful for consumers in that. It's not a deep contraction in consumer spending. But it will slow down demand. And the Fed is sitting here trying to, you know, better align demand and supply. And unfortunately, supply is constrained in the most extraordinary way in the labor market. And I, you know, the labor market's my specialty. And I think people, it's hard because a lot of people don't understand what's going on in the labor market. And there's a lot of scars of the pandemic. We lost a lot of souls that were prime age workers as well as older workers. Also, a lot of older workers who usually would have been participating, the over 65 crowd, their participation rate increased 1995 to February 2020, fell off a cliff, not coming back. Why aren't they coming back? A lot of them got COVID and now have long COVID. Mm. They can't work as well as they once could. On the other side of it, we've got over 55 retirements, early retirements picked up. Why did they pick up so much? Were they just so wealthy or were they playing a key role in their families? Well, what we find out is they are not only watching grandchildren, they're also caring for elderly parents because those are the two parts of the economy where labor shortages remain the most acute. We're not even back to February 2020 levels in those sectors. You're talking about the women. I mean, that's you're talking Largely about women. women. Yep. We're talking about women. I mean, yes, there's some lovely men who also do this, but let's face it. We know how the data falls onto the shoulders of women. And yet- Women in the prime age labor force, which sadly I'm out of now, Jean, I'm no longer in that 25 to 54 demographic, but the prime age women have come back to their pre-pandemic levels, basically. It's the men that have lagged in the prime age. And this is where I get to, you know, the scars, you know, we've got these older workers that we've lost. Two of the three and a half million workers that we're sort of missing in the labor force right now are retirees. So they're not coming back. Then we've lost some people through this friction of any given month. In the month of November last year, 70% 
higher number of people who are unable to work and out sick than in any month of the 2010s because we're accepting a very high rate of infections. That adds to staffing shortages. That adds to costs. That adds to inflation in the service sector and keeps labor constrained. Between February of 2020 and the end of 2022, labor force growth was almost flat. We grew almost nothing, less than 1%. Yet the demand for workers on the margin by the latter part of, you know, 2022 was still running almost 50% above what it was in February 2020 on the margin. That's an incredible mismatch. Yeah. And when people say people are lazy, there's I can't find workers. Well, first of all, supply is constrained because more people retired. We don't have immigration fell off a cliff from 2016 to 2019 legal immigration and then further in 2020 and 2021 it's beginning to come back but that's not there those people aren't there and you literally have an aging demographic problem that you're going up against and that is causing a mismatch that's allowing inflation not a wage price spiral but costing businesses a lot that's showing up in prices that we don't want to have that metastasize and stick around right so workers are earning more Wages are up for the first time in a long time, not up enough to keep pace with inflation, but up, and that is leading to inflation. So that's the next item on my list. How's the Fed done in terms of taming inflation, and how long do you think it will be until they get it under control? Our forecast is a little more negative than theirs in terms of an actual recession. They would think it's 50-50 chance we'll hit an actual recession or a sharp slowdown with the rise in the unemployment rate, you know, splitting hairs on what that, on the difference between those two. But our view is that an actual recession in the first half of the year, that's not deep, but will help to bring the labor market more in line and demand more in line with supply more broadly, which will slow down wage growth, but it will cool inflation by the end of the year. And by the end of the year, I think by the end of 2023 and as we move into 2024, even though wage growth will be slower, instead of running over 5%, something in the 3 to 4% range as we move into 2024, if we have inflation back below 3%, closer to 2%, you finally got real wage gains again. Right. So, you know, you really want things more in balance. So even if wages slow, if they slow but not as rapidly as inflation comes down. Eventually, they get to cross each other in a positive way. And that's what the Fed's goal is. It's hard to get from here to there. It's a rocky road with a lot of, you know, potholes in the road. But there's a good reason to get there because you want to get to the place where you get to keep more of your paycheck and not feel like you're burning through your savings just to make ends meet on simple things like basics of food, shelter, And for those people who are fortunate enough to have money in their 401ks and their IRAs, you don't want to look at it and feel like, where did all that hard work go? Uh, Yeah. Talk (laughs) Talk to me about the markets, the stock market, the bond markets. They have been just hideous. Yes. When do you think that picture, I mean, historically, we know the markets come back But the question that I'm getting asked, and so I'm going to ask you, is how long do we have to wait? 
Well, a lot of that depends on how far the Fed goes and how long they have to keep rates up, right? Our view is that um, we're more optimistic because we have a more severe slowdown than the Fed in the first half of the year, is that we end up getting in a position that the Fed can start cutting rates. They're not going back to zero, and you don't want them to, because if they go back to zero, that means we're in a really bad position. But they'll be cutting rates by the end of the year. As the financial markets start to see that possibility, that's when you start to see financial markets rally. Our own models, and you know, this is just models, you know, suggest that we'll have another five to seven percent correction in the markets before we hit a bottom, but that we'll be bottoming out mid-2023 and then coming back and be above where we are today by the end of 2023. Not a lot above, but above where we are today by the end of 2023. Now that sounds nice and neat. Getting from here to there is a very hard process. And you know, I know one of the things about financial markets that's always been the most difficult is the old adage, buy low and sell high is really never followed because human behavior is, you know, we love the comfort of a crowd. And many more of us would rather be running into a market that may be even bubbling, which I would argue we've had a pandemic-induced bubble to some extent, and that's been burst in housing as well and in many areas. But as we come off of it, nobody wants to catch a falling knife. Nobody wants to invest in a depreciating asset, even if that might be you know, the right time to put your money in because nobody wants to call the bottom. And that behavioral aspect of it is what you know, the model can say one thing, but can give us these overshoots on the downside and then a big spring back. I think the important thing to remember is the world, in many ways, the pandemic accelerated a lot of trends that were in place prior to the pandemic, geopolitical tensions, the aging of the demographics. We've seen a surge in extreme weather events through climate change. That trifecta of things were accelerated in the last several years, and it catapulted us through the looking glass. And I, I use this analogy a lot because it's Alice went through the looking glass into a world that was a mirror image of the world in which she left. And as a dyslexic, it meant a lot to me. It was a book that my father, the only book my father ever gave me was Through the Looking Glass. And it was right after I was diagnosed with dyslexia and you had to read words in a mirror because they were written backwards. So the irony was there. But the idea that it was a reverse world where you had to run to stay in place. You had to move backwards to move forwards. In many ways, the world in which we left was a very slow, subpar growth world with very slow change and tepid inflation and tepid growth and tepid wage growth. And it was a world where it seemed where we had almost an excess of abundance of cheap labor and cheap goods. And whenever we hit against inflation, we would just turn to the global economy and have them alleviate any pressures. And we're moving into a world that's more defined by scarcities and an inverse of that with shorter business cycles that may be more inflation prone and punctuated by increases in interest rates, but a world that also is in some ways more like the world that we had 40 years ago than the world that we have been enduring. And for workers, I know this is not an easy time for many people, but for workers, they're not going to suddenly lose the leverage that they have gained during the pandemic. And I don't think that's all bad. I think that's actually, as a labor economist, I actually like the fact that workers have a little leverage and that you know maybe we could see 
wages keep up with productivity growth instead of lag productivity growth. I mean, productivity growth is the one way, if you're more productive, you should be able to be justified being paid more without getting inflation, right? Well, wages for decades lagged productivity growth. And workers lost a lot of living standards, inequality accelerated. We need to close that a little bit. And if that means workers having a little more power and employers thinking about workers more as people rather than commodities that can be easily traded, I think that's a good thing. I am with you. I'm struck as we're having this conversation by your sense of calm (sighs) and how calm you are in talking about so many of these complicated things where we're just not sure exactly what is going to happen next. I'm going to come back in just a second. I'm going to ask you how you do that. How do you harness that sense of calm when we're talking about things like retirement, retirement's a big deal. And since women live longer, we know we have to make our savings last longer. And that means that we have to plan smarter. Our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines, is there to help you with that. If you visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney, you can schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor. You can get a fresh look at your finances and work with experts to create a plan to help build, grow, protect, and preserve your wealth for the retirement of your dreams. It's your money, and that means it's up to you to make it count. Get started at planefe.com slash hermoney and speak with an advisor today. I'm talking with Diane Swank, chief economist at KPMG. So how do you do it? I mean, when I turn on the TV and the markets are roller coastering, some days I just turn off the TV, quite frankly. Some days I'm just like, yeah, I'm not here for this. Absolutely. I absolutely do the same. You know, this is personal. I am someone who has been through a lot, particularly in the last three years. My son's almost died three times of asthma when he was a kid. I went through a lot of trauma as a kid myself. And I was in the World Trade Center on 9-11. And 20 years later, during the middle of the pandemic, I was diagnosed with several cancers. And I've always had to deal with a lot of pots boiling on the stove. And I've learned being a dyslexic, you never give up. You're used to falling down and picking yourself up. It gives you a sense of tenacity and resilience. And going through 11 surgeries through the pandemic and just keeping one foot in front of the other and having my children be beacons of light in what seemed an oasis of darkness. I often say this, and I'm actually using it in something I wrote, I think about recently, I've been having the song, It's a Wonderful World, in my head, because when Louis Armstrong sang that in 1967, it was not a wonderful world. We're in the middle of the Vietnam War, protests were accelerating, inflation was surging. In fact, it tripled in the 1960s before we even got into the 1970s, and civil unrest was turning very ugly, and this country was very deeply divided politically sound familiar? Oh, yeah. That song, What a Wonderful World, was not about what the world was, but what it could be. And I think about that a lot, given all that I've been through in my life and the role my children have played and what they helped me through as being kids and what I hope I helped them through. But there's one verse that really hits me, and it's that I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They'll know more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And when I look at our younger generation and what they're doing to fix the world after 
I tried and feel like I failed, I'm humbled. And the brilliance of that is what keeps me going. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. You look fabulous. I I <laughs> hope that you're doing well. I am. I'm sort of the only version of Build Back Better you're going to see. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, but it's so true what you say about dyslexic people. My daughter has dyslexia and she is so, I mean, we didn't discover it until she was in eighth grade, shame on us. And she is so strong and so resilient and able to figure out any puzzle. You know, it's, it's, it is a trait of dyslexics. And I mean, I'm glad she discovered it and I hope she's doing well. I work with the Yale Dyslexic Institute. I, you know, I've worked on congressional testimony on this. Life is not about your successes. You learn from your failures and dyslexics are used to plowing through walls. And my kids, the first one they call, if anything goes wrong, is me. And they think I can solve any problem. And I can't solve any problem. But as strong as they've been for me, I've been for them. But it's because I just don't give up. And they understand that. And that is, I think, because of how my mind thinks differently. And having had so many failures in my life and having to pick myself up and keep going And, you know, I think back on being a kid and your daughter probably feels the same, having, you know, my parents sort of say, never give up. And I didn't. And that's really an important thing to keep in mind. And so it helps you sort of, I'm often the calm in the center of the storm. It doesn't mean I don't feel it. And I don't deal with this all afterwards. I do. But that sort of resilience, I think, comes from People who face adversity and have overcome it, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but you do know that there is a way to get over a wall. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. As we wind this down with resilience as our guiding factor, what are the two, three, four moves that you think individuals should be making with their money, with their jobs, with their investments in their houses now? Well, you know, I'm not an advisor, but, you know, as an economist, what I think about is it's interesting that over 40% of people actually own their homes right now outright. And they'd like to age in place. And the question is, you know, is that the best thing for you or not? And there is going to be a hit home values, but it's not going to be 2008, 2009. And I think that's important. I think it's important to think about being cautious about how you spend right now. I also think that women in particular tend to be too tentative in their willingness to change jobs. And they're much more loyal to empathetic bosses, so are underrepresented minorities. Unfortunately, there's not enough empathetic bosses out there, given all that they juggle. And I think that even though we're talking about going into a more difficult time, it is important that people think about the whole picture, about where they're at and where they want to be, and don't be afraid to make changes. Yes, you got to hunker down for a little bit, but The recession is not a repeat of what we've seen, and the equation for workers is going to continue to give them an upper hand. Keep that in the back of your mind, because as we get through to the other side, 
of this, there is an opportunity to think about how and where you want to work and who you want to work for. And I think that is important to remember because I think there was a fear for a long time of job hopping and switching jobs. And I know employers don't like it, but employers need to step up and also let your employer know what you need to stay because we need to be working with each other now. And the economy is now aligning so that that can happen. And I think that is a really important thing to be thinking about when you think about your career, your finances, what are you willing to trade off in order to make ends meet and go further and be able to climb a career ladder? It's really hard if you're living paycheck to paycheck to even think about investing in yourself, but you may have an employer that may be willing to invest in you now in a way they weren't before. And that's something you should lean into. I love it. Where can our listeners follow you if they want to just keep up with what you're doing? Oh, you know, I've got my Twitter feed. Um, Diane Swank. It's really easy. There's, I'm the only one out there. You know, it turns out if you actually have that last name, you're probably related to me. So it's at Diane Swank on Twitter. Awesome. Diane, thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate it. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We'll dive into our mailbag in just a sec. But before we do that, just a reminder that Her Money is proudly supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that understands that financial freedom doesn't just happen at one single point, but rather at many different stages of life. That's why they like to say BCU is here today for your tomorrow with support available at every stage of your financial journey. And you can learn more about eligibility to join BCU at bcu.org. Chelsea Zhu, our associate producer, joins us today for Mailbag. Catherine is a little under the weather. Hey, Chelsea. Hey, Jean. So I know Diane was giving us all of the tea leave reading for 2023, all of the indications of what she thinks we might be able to expect and how we should proceed. But sometimes I think you just have to listen to the signs that you get from the earth or the universe, really, the signs that you get from the universe. So I was driving to the studio today. We're actually recording out of the studio, not out of home. And I pull off the West Side Highway, make a which way was I going? I'm one of those people I have to look before I know my right from my left still at age 58. I make a left-hand turn onto 44th Street and get stopped at a light. And the car in front of me, the license plate reads F-O-R-H-R-M-N-Y. You got it? F-O-R-H-R-M-N-Y. M-N-Y. Now, some people might read that for Harmony. I read it for her money. I mean, this license plate right in front of me on this red key, I have a picture of it. We'll post it for you guys. For her money. Can you believe that? Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. When you were spelling it out, I was like, oh my, I don't know how to spell. So it was taking me a minute (laughs) to put it together. But yeah, I totally believe in like universe woo-woo stuff so oh you do I would not have suspected that well not in like any kind of like formal way like I don't do horoscopes but something like for example that I always do is 
there was this really weird period in my life where I found a lot of money just like on the ground. And my belief system was that every time I found it, I would donate it. Like I'd never spend it on myself. And then it just kept happening. Like I would find money. So I felt like that was the universe saying like, it's a good thing to donate money. And if you do that, then you'll keep getting money. How much money are we talking about? So the first time it was like some random dollar bills that were just in like some potted plants, <laughs> like on the street. But then the second time it was a $20 bill, which I thought was absolutely insane. That's crazy. Oh, I like that. And I like that you decided to give it away and, and pay it forward a little bit. Did it make you feel good? Yeah, it does. And now I've been doing it for, I think, like two or three years now. And I think that I have found more money on the ground than other people around me. So. All right. This sounds like a short story in the making, Chelsea. I'm just I'm just saying, put that in your notebook and scribble on it for a little while. I know that we've got a bunch of questions, so let's dig in. Yeah. So our question today comes from a member of our private Her Money Facebook group. She writes, my boyfriend bought a house. I gave him $10,000 towards the down payment. Nothing crazy. It's honestly comparable to what I would have put down as a deposit on a rental in my area. My name is not on the deed or the mortgage. I'll be paying $1,600 per month towards the $5,000 monthly mortgage, and I'm in no way responsible for maintenance of the home. If we break up, I get my $10,000 back. I had been feeling great about this plan, but a few friends have me second-guessing the ethics of getting no portion of my monthly contribution to the mortgage. I was viewing it as rent, but am I being naive here? Second, which has me a little embarrassed... In the event that something happened to my partner, I'm not certain there are any safeguards in place ensuring that I'm entitled to this home in any way. This is where I feel a little icky about helping pay a mortgage on a home I technically have no stake in. His family is fine, but we do not have a great relationship. His brother lost his fiancée last year, and they were 100% understanding of the fiancée's family keeping all of her assets since they weren't technically married yet. I get nervous when I think about it. I'm just wondering what thoughts you wonderful women may have about the situation at large. Oh boy, this one is absolutely complicated. And I'm going to talk about the second part first, Chelsea. In the event that something happened to your partner, there are no safeguards. In the event that something happened to your partner, unless there is documentation that this house is in some way being left to you, unless there's a will that spells it out, you could be very, very quickly out on the street. Now, I hope that his family would treat you kindly. I hope that his family would give you some time. But I am reading this with my understanding of how the legalities here work, and you could be up a creek at the point in time when you are grieving and not have a place to live. So that is something that you want to think about, something that you want to consider. Look, I don't know what rent is in your area, and so I'm not sure if the $1,600 a month is fair as it pertains to rent where you live. I'm also not sure because you don't spell it out how you are splitting the other costs of owning this home. Who's paying for utilities? Who's paying for the internet? Who's paying for cable if you haven't cut the cord? How are you splitting the grocery bills? If there are 
costs for parking, what's going on with those. And as for that $10,000 toward the down payment, there is absolutely no guarantee that you would get it back unless it is spelled out in writing. And so my advice is to first sit down and talk to your boyfriend about what he thinks is equitable. Does he think it equitable that you get your $10,000 back if you break up? If so, you should be sitting together and with an attorney to put a plan in writing to make sure that this happens. Couples who live together often have what are basically partnership agreements that spell out the details of what would happen if their financial life were to fall apart because their relationship falls apart. And I think that you need one of those. It should not be expensive. A divorce attorney, a family attorney could easily pull one of these together for you. And having gone through the process of a prenup before I got married to my now husband, my second husband, I know that there may be some reluctance to approach it from a perspective of, I need an attorney, because it sounds unromantic. It sounds as if you are predicting the demise of this relationship that you hope will actually last forever. It is not such a big deal. My husband and I sat down. We figured out what we wanted. We presented that to the lawyers. Lawyers drew up the paperwork. We signed the paperwork. We put it in a drawer. I haven't looked at it. I don't think he's looked at it. If anything were ever to happen, we would have it. But I think you are, yeah, you asked the question, are you being naive? I think you're being a little naive. And I would like to see you take some steps to just protect yourself and then go on and enjoy your life and enjoy your partner, your boyfriend, enjoy living in this house if this is where you decide that you want to stay and figure out what comes next for your future without having to worry that your finances could potentially be at risk. What does that sound like to you, Chelsea? I know, I mean, not to put you on the spot, but you live with your boyfriend. Yeah, all such great points. And I'm glad that I was here listening to it because, as you said, I just moved in for the first time with my partner. And uh, I think, luckily for us, the situation is very simple because neither of us have a home. So it's really easy to split rent and utilities, you know, 50-50. But I definitely think, like, going forward into the future, that's something that we're going to have to talk about if we are thinking about getting a home. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for being so candid and thank you for sharing with us. Thanks for stepping in for Catherine. Yeah, thanks, Jean. In today's Thrive, let's talk about how to get a little more organized for the coming year. We are in a new year. Welcome to 2023. And that means it's the perfect time to get a little more organized. And yeah, this could mean organizing your home, cleaning out your closets. I love cleaning out a good closet, by the way, but it should also mean getting your finances in order. At HerMoney.com, we've got some expert tips for getting financially organized this year. First, start with an audit. This can be as easy as mapping out how much money you have coming in each month and how much you have going out. Once you see that, you'll have a better idea of what you're able to stash away in savings. The audit can also pinpoint ways you can cut back on expenses and help you develop a framework for a budget going forward. 
Next, take a look at your accounts. High interest rate savings accounts are paying upwards of 3% lately after paying hardly anything for most of last year. Opening one of these accounts can help you gather a bit of interest on the savings that you're able to put away. And if you don't have one already, open an emergency savings account. If these last few years taught us anything, it's that we can never be too prepared. So start small. Even setting aside $20 a week is great. Then work your way up to having a cushion of three to six months worth of living expenses. Also, now is a great time to check in on your retirement account. If you haven't been taking full advantage of your employer match or if you could save a little bit more each pay period, now's a really good time to make those adjustments. Lastly, it's time to get serious about tackling debt, especially high interest rate debt like the ones that you have on your credit cards. No matter what your financial future holds, credit card debt, and credit card debt, by the way, has been rising fast. It can be such a source of stress in your life that you just don't need. And in the event of a recession or a layoff where all of your income has to go toward necessities, credit card debt can be especially dangerous. To learn more about the debt repayment method that might work best for you, check out our resources at money.com or check out our eight-week budgeting course, Finance Fix. In fact, if you've got your own questions about managing your savings or curbing your spending or prepping for retirement, our Finance Fix coaching program covers all of these topics and more. As I said, it's an eight-week program where you work with a trained finance coach to create a personal budget. You'll learn many of my strategies for paying off debt and building wealth. This is the methodology that I perfected working with folks on the Today Show and Oprah, and you will have the help and support of a team of women who are starting the program at the same time as you are, as well as one-on-one coaching. Our next session starts January 10th, just a week away, so you can start 2023 on the best financial foot possible. You can sign up at financefix.com. That's financefix with two X's.com. You got this. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Diane Swank for joining me to break down where the economy may be headed. If you like what you hear, I hope that you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We would like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon.